This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high-fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Any health-related information on the following show provides general information only. Content presented on any show by any host or guest should not be substituted for a doctor's advice. Always consult your physician before beginning any new diet, exercise, or treatment program. everybody welcome to the namaste wellness show where we talk about all things holistic health for the mind body and spirit for people and pets with a touch of cultural soul today my name is laura i'm your host thank you so much for being here today our soul our show is going to be cultural and soulful in celebration of dr martin luther king jr day i have a very special guest who is uh who marched alongside with dr martin luther king he is a um a civil rights activist himself he was dr king's um education director during dr king's or for dr king's southern christian leadership conference my guest is a lifelong educator among his many accomplishments, he served as the Dean of the College of Urban Development at Michigan State University and has been a consultant for many of the nation's largest school districts. He's also an author of many books, including The Urban Challenge, A Call for Change, Providing Solutions for Black Male Education, Expect the Best, Provide the Most, High, How High Expectations, Outstanding Instruction, and curricular innovations help all students succeed. His most recent book is his autobiography. He is also a very devoted family man and he's been married to his beautiful wife, Letty, for over 65 years. They are the father of three sons, um, attorney uh, Vincent R. Vincent Green, business manager and MBA Kurt Green, and digital technology and personalized learning manager and youngest son, Kevin Green, all of whom assist in providing scholarship and consulting services to improve K through 12 education on the team of Robert L. Green Associates. Welcome Dr. Robert L. Green. Hi, welcome. Thank yeah. you for being on the show yes, today. Tell us a little bit about your history how you started out, well, a little bit about your roots, how you grew up and what, uh, who your mentors were, your um, influencers, and how you came to become educated and a civil rights activist. We'll go that far too. Okay. 
born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and my, I'm one of uh, nine children, five boys and four girls. Mother named my birth father's name Thomas. My father was very pushy about education. Mm -hmm. and, um, he was pushy about education because in Jones County, Georgia, uh, I had a station. My father wanted to go to school, and his dad wouldn't let him go to school, made him work in the fields, and he supervised his two of his sisters. One was Queen Anne Lamar, and the other was Sadie Ashford. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were the people that my dad was really responsible for early on. But any relative that came around that needed work, my dad would give them work in Jones County, Georgia. Now, at five years of age, or six years of age, my father went to complete another year of schooling. And his dad said, no, you got to work in the fields and pick cotton. Mm -hmm. uh, so my father was always upset about that, always wanted to go to school, couldn't go to school. But he had mm -hmm. nine children. Right. Or nine to go to school and to get an education. And so mm -hmm. that's all my dad talked about, get an education, get an education. And mm -hmm. as a result, we ended up with uh, one brother with an MD and, and sisters nurses and other brothers got college degrees. That was because mm -hmm. of my dad. So education was uh, of a primary focus in our life. But now wasn't your mother a teacher too? Didn't she, wasn't she a teacher as well? <laughs> No, she was a teacher. My mother was a community activist. Okay. Uh, my mother used to get barrels of clothing. I can mm -hmm. see this now. My brother John and I, my mother would go out to jail, Hudson's, and they would give her nice new clothing. And my mother would ship all that clothing to Haiti. My mother mm -hmm. was very involved in Haitian relief. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm now 90, I'm an old man. I was a little kid. I remember my mother having my brother John and myself the barrels of clothing that she would collect at different stores, department stores in Detroit, mm -hmm. put them on the truck, take them down to the Michigan Central train station, and we shipped them off to Haiti. Wow. So okay. my mother married very much. That's what she did. She was very active in the church. Mm -hmm. My dad was a pastor in the middle. So mm -hmm. my mother was acting in a church with them. But she never, well, she didn't do one thing. My mother uh, organized the Charitable Workers of the World, Charitable mm -hmm. Workers of the World. That okay. she would collect clothing and um, distribute that clothing. Uh, primarily to Haiti was a major country. But uh, mm -hmm. another, I can't think of the name of the other African country, but mm -hmm. Haitian relief was very much a part of our mother's effort. Wow. Yeah. Even so back then. Yeah, she was a good worker. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother <clears throat> would hire would hire women, black women, mm -hmm. and go out and work for white women all day, bring mm -hmm. the money back uh, to my mother, and my mother would take a, a little a portion of it and they would keep the rest. Wow. And my mother, the chair workers of the world, 
So my mother had women working for her. White women would call mm-hmm. and uh, drop clothing by the house. Uh-huh. And my mother okay. would uh, pick it up, they would wash the clothing and iron it. I remember that as a little kid. So yeah. my mother was very active. My father uh, worked uh, in the factory, fish about it, and also he was a pastor. Right, yeah. Okay. So, so they were, that sounds like you had, um, you, 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 education was very important as well as charitable work was very important as a, a young boy. So was that what catapulted you into, what catapulted you into the civil rights movement? Uh, my my sister Lethia, mm. one of my uh, four sisters, gave me a book by Langston Hughes. Mm. Okay. Uh, and I read that book when I was probably 11, 12 years of age. And that's when I first yeah. began to learn about race discrimination, especially in the South. But in the, my mm-hmm. sister reminded me that race discrimination was a factor in the North. So I was reading about racial discrimination uh, uh, as written by Langston Hughes, the great writer when I was as young as maybe 12 or 13 years of age. So discrimination was always uh, something that I was concerned about. Uh, My dad uh, talked about it in the South. My father talked talked about how he was almost lynched once mm. so, here's another thing my, I, one day my i took my dad took me shopping mm-hmm. i'm sorry let me reverse it i took my dad shopping out mm-hmm. on eight or eight um, when blacks could hardly go out there and i bought him a new top coat it was in the winter time mm-hmm. we came back to detroit i said dad tell me something that you know that you've never shared with anybody else He's all oh boy, I don't know anything. I said, Dad, wait, wait a minute. You're not going to get all that easy. You're going to share something with me because I just bought you a new top coat. <laughs> and we laughed. Uh-huh. And we sat down. And he told me that when he was, uh, I think, 14 years of age, he and another black kid saw one of their buddies hung from a tree. He was lynched. Mm-hmm. Um, was that down south or was so that asked, north? Was that down south? Down, down, yeah, down south. My father was maybe 12, 11, 12 years of age. I was mm-hmm. in Jones County, Haddock Station. And so uh, I asked my dad, um, what did you do? My father said nothing. He said every now and then whites would lynch a black man to keep other blacks in place. Now it's interesting that uh, Laura, I'm blocking on her name, but the, the female politician in Georgia, um, mm-hmm. uh, whatever her name is, she was raised in the same area, and she talked about it as my dad. And I meant to drop a note, and I just haven't done it. Mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> uh, so my father saw discrimination at a very early age, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that led him um, to become active in the church. Right. And, uh, well, I, let me ask you, let me ask you, uh, Dr. Green, and um, I know some, I might slip up and call you cousin, 
Bob, because remember when I was going to Michigan State University, you used to call me cousin Laura. <laughs> but um, yeah, do you think, I mean, because you were growing up before the civil rights movement, do you think your family, your parents in the North, I know it wasn't as much racism in the North, but do you think they shielded you all from racism as children? Because did you feel that you, you never really experienced it yourself as a child, correct? Well, in a way, I worked in an Italian bottle shop when I was um, maybe nine or ten years of age, cleaning his platoons, sweeping the floor, and I would hear white men. I didn't know at the time they were Italians, yeah. but it was an yeah. Italian, and they used to use the N word a lot. Oh, and, I, and I began to understand the nature of their feelings. They talked about blacks. The blacks were lazy, blacks were no good. I used to hear that coming from these white men. Of course, I never said anything because I was a little kid. So I began to- You didn't uh, experience that. You didn't know anything about that either because you know your family wasn't like that. And you knew, no. and I remember Aunt Sadie, um, you know, would tell stories because, you know, Aunt Sadie and my, Aunt Sadie and Aunt Sis were your aunts. They were my mom's aunts too. And they were my grandmother's sister, you know, and they would tell stories like that. But I knew growing up, growing up, we never, I know, I didn't know anybody lazy in our family, you know, everybody worked. But anyway, I digress. Sorry, go ahead and finish saying what you were that's saying. How, that's, how, that's what we heard. So I never expected anything decent from whites. And uh, yeah. Sam, let's take Sam Francisco as an example. People always talk about, I miss, I miss my San Francisco, a liberal community. Oh, it's such a nice. I drove a taxi cab. I was one of the first blacks to drive a yellow taxi cab. Oh, you, you, I want to say this. I had as many as two or three jobs to support Letty and my two little boys when they were growing up. Another job was a yellow driving a yellow cab. I was the first black to drive a yellow cab in San Francisco. The second one was a man who later went to medical school, Louis Davis. But anyway, to make a long story short, I used to watch the way whites treated blacks in San Francisco. This was not Mississippi or Alabama. This is San Francisco, California. And see, I, uh, later on, I worked for Martin Luther King Jr. And I knew about discrimination in the South. So mm -hmm. I learned at a young man's age that discrimination was everywhere in America. Mm -hmm. And that uh, living in a northern urban community did not shelter you from discrimination. It was there, it was everywhere. And Langston Hughes' book, I read one of his books, as I said before, that my sister Lethia gave me to read, and he mm -hmm. talked about discrimination in the South. But also, my sister said, don't forget, Lethia said, there's also discrimination in the North. And I saw it as a kid growing up in Detroit. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. So now, well, let's talk about, so that was pre-civil rights. So let's talk about the civil rights movement and your relationship with Dr. King, how did you get in um, connected to Dr. King in the civil rights movement? 
Okay, I remember it was a national meeting of the National Office of the NAACP. They had a national meeting in San Francisco. And I had read about the Montgomery bus boycott in Rosa Parks. And the year that uh, the boycott was done, Martin Luther King Jr. was asked to be the keynote speaker at the meeting in San Francisco. So I was driving my yellow cab. I parked it behind the Civic Center, mm -hmm. uh, went in and sat in the back. And King was just getting going in his speech. And I tell you, I was just stunned at a man who could speak like he could speak, not being afraid, being working in Alabama with Rosa Parks, whom I met later on. Mm. And uh, uh, I was impressed by him. Mm -hmm. He finished. I'll never forget, there was a singer by the name of uh, Mahalia Jackson. I don't know if you're old enough to remember mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I see, My sister, I think, sang with her. Okay. Mahalia Jackson was supposed to sing, but she had a sore throat and couldn't sing. Mm -hmm. And she was mobbed around Martin And I worked my way through the crowd, and I tugged him on his suit coat. He turned around and looked at me, and I said, my name is Robert Green, and I, I'd like to work with you someday. He mm -hmm. said, well, what are you doing now? I said, I'm going to school, working on my bachelor's degree, or might have been my master's, I don't know. And I'm driving a taxi cab part-time. He said, well, I'll tell you what you do. You stay in school and, and finish school. When you finish school, you contact me. Mm. So many years later, when I had... Uh, I got my PhD. We needed students at Michigan State uh, needed some money to run a summer tutorial project in at Rush in Holly Springs, Mississippi. We didn't have any money, so I had this great idea. Why don't we call King and have King come up and give a speech, and we'll raise some money. Hmm. Nobody knew him. But I remember there was a lady by the name of Edwilla Moss. Her husband, she's married now. Her husband's a preacher in Cleveland, Ohio. She uh, worked for him. I found out that she worked for him. I called her and told her what we were trying to do to raise money for a summer tutorial project, Michigan State students. Uh, and she got Martin Luther King Jr. with all the scheduling and everything to come to Michigan State and speak. Oh, wow. Which was packed, and it had an audio feed covering his speech in another room. About 5,000 students came out to hear King speak. Hmm. And uh, I, I reminded him <laughs> that uh, he told me years ago to get an <laughs> education. I'm now on the faculty at Michigan State. And he said, well, okay, why don't you come on and help me out some? Went to John Hanna, who's president of Michigan State, and asked him for some leave time. He gave it to me. And he said, what are you going to do? Uh, I said, I'm going to go work for Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. He said, oh, okay. And 
I always had a good relationship with John Hanna because I remember one day when I was finishing my PhD, I was walking to the Michigan State University Library, and this big old white man came, stopped his car, got out, and started walking very quickly towards me. I said, oh, my God, here's another, you know what? So I was, a, I was a wrestler at San Francisco State College. As a matter of fact, I got on the wall. Uh, my wrestling, uh, I took third third in a uh, uh, wrestling competition in California. Oh, yeah. California. So I went in a wrestling stand, and he came up to me and said, young man, where are you going? I said, going to the library. Where are you going to the library? I'm going there to, he was nice but gruff. Uh -huh. I said, to do some research, I'm, I'm working on my PhD. He said, you're working on your PhD? I said, yes, sir. I said, what is your name? He said, my name is John Hanna. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm president of Michigan State. Uh -huh. So that's how I met him. I met him outside of the MSU library. And okay. whenever I needed anything mm -hmm. on campus, uh, students being discriminated against, black students. Remember Landon Hall? Landon Hall had a bad, Landon Hall, yes. Uh -huh. River had a mm -hmm. terrible reputation uh, for black women. If a black uh, young lady was uh, in a room and a white girl was accidentally assigned to the room, they made mm -hmm. the black girl move. There was a guy, I think his name was Clarence Peets. He was mm -hmm. a football player. Mm -hmm. He went to the union to get a haircut. Uh, and they wouldn't cut his hair. He came mm -hmm. to me. I went to John. John Hanna took him over to the union and had the union barbers cut his hair and Hanna's hair. He said, "If you mm -hmm. ever refuse to cut the hair of another student, I want to fire you." So that's mm -hmm. how I met John Hanna. Anyway, now um, he did he have, was he the one? Um, is that how you became he he hired you as the dean of the College of Urban Development? Uh, was he the John, president? Oh. He but John played a role in it, but uh, it was Cliff Warden. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, well, I was just asking. Go ahead. About, about racism. Mm -hmm. My sister Alicia mm -hmm. taught me uh, uh, about it and gave me a book, Langston You Book Three, on discrimination in the South. But she said, remember, there's also discrimination in the North mm -hmm. as well. Right. So that's so all that. I wanted to show, I just wanted to show a few pictures. There was just some pictures with uh, Dr. King, and then we had pictures with uh, Coretta Scott King, because you had said that, Letty, your wife, was good friends with Coretta as well. And um, I was just going to show a few of the pictures there. I was very active with students at Michigan State, mm -hmm. and especially 
uh, students who were discriminated against. Right. And uh, that's how I became known on the campus. Okay. And when I needed students to help me protest, mm -hmm. the university knew I could get them and I could get them in a hurry. Mm -hmm. okay. So um, students played a very major role, uh, former students of mine, of uh, making, helping make uh, Michigan State a better place. So there's a young lady in Detroit, Ingrid Saunders Jones. Mm -hmm. You might look her up, Ingrid Saunders Jones. Okay. Uh, uh, she was very much involved. And there was another young lady, I'm mm -hmm. trying to think of her and her husband, who was a lawyer, a very distinguished attorney in Detroit. Now, those students like that that worked with me and helped me deal with discrimination uh, on the campus. And we okay. had our problems. We had our problems. Right. By the time you came to Michigan State. I, I was going to say, yeah, things were not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Don't. Uh, a lot of those difficulties. Yeah. Right. And Keith was there while I was there. I know Kirk was at Michigan State at that time. Um, Sam was there, you know. Um, so, yeah, we I didn't uh, personally experience anything uh, like that on campus. Yeah. So we all had done a lot of work. Well, tell us a little bit, if you can talk a little oh, bit. No. A little bit about... Um, marching the the marches you did with uh, martin luther king that had to be a very um fear you know scary experience to to be marching um in the civil rights movement so what what can you tell us was, about you your know, experience lord i was never afraid okay i learned as a kid that cowards uh, um, you know, I worked with little elementary and middle school kids right. uh, later on, and I would always tell them, remember, that bully is the most scary kid around. And he behavior to make things people afraid. So I, a white man in the South, South Ingram, for example, uh, was a sheriff in Grenada, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And black people, and I let that famous picture of me hanging an American flag. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that picture? If not, I'll make sure Kurt gets it to you. Okay. Hanging the American flag. Suggs Ingram had a reputation of brutalizing blacks. And there was some rumors that they killed black men. Mm -hmm. And I would get in his face. I remember one time I taught my class at 200 in the morning, took a noon flight to Atlanta, and took another flight over to Mississippi. And I was in a demonstration, and he came up to me with his club. I said, don't you hit me with that club. I just told him. And I looked him in the face. And I did go in my old rest stance. Uh, and yeah, I rest said, don't you <laughs> I said, don't you hear me with that? Well, and he looked at me as, as if to say, who are you? And I just looked at looked at the face, stood face to face with him, and he backed off. Uh -huh. And Grenada, Mississippi, was known as the meanest town in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Guess what? 
Andy Young just told me a short time ago mm -hmm. that the mayor of Grenada is a young black man who went to Jack. Yeah, he went to Jackson State, uh -huh. majored in, in agriculture, and came back to Grenada, Mississippi, and the whites got together with the blacks. Yeah. Isn't he like, I think I heard him on the radio, isn't he like 19 or 20 years old? I think uh, I heard he, him on the radio. Okay. Yeah. Well, the whites got together with the blacks. Uh-huh. And we are tired of Grenada mm -hmm. being known as the meanest place in Mississippi. And let's do something about it. He had finished, he had graduated from Jackson State. I, uh, Andy Young just told me this a short time ago, uh, with a degree in agriculture. And the whites and the blacks got together and said, we're going to make you mayor because we know you. You were born and raised here, and everybody likes you. So the mayor of Grenada, Mississippi, is a black man. You ought to call him one day, Laura, mm -hmm. and interview him. Yeah. I can't think of his name, but you can get his name. He's the mayor of Grenada. Andy, when Andy Young told me that, I couldn't believe it. Grenada was a place where blacks were deathly afraid. His name was Suggs, S-U-G-G-S, Suggs Ingram. Mm -hmm. And there's a picture of me in my book. Do you have a copy of my book? Not, uh, not yet. But I am going to get it. Your biography of your biography. Yeah. I had. I don't have it. Yeah, I, don't it. Okay. I saw well, pictures, I have, um, on, I saw pictures well, on your website, though. That's what I was hoping. Okay, I'm going to copy the book to you and okay. uh, send it to you. Uh, Thank you. There's a picture of Suggs uh, shaking his finger in my face. And I told him, uh, don't, don't you dare hit me with that club. And of course, if he had clubbed me, uh, Martin Luther, I'll never forget. Martin, I was in, uh, I led a group of about 12 people up the steps of the uh, uh, Civic Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, no, it was the Capitol building. That's the Capitol building. They refused to see Julian Brown. Julian Brown said, I'm not going to Vietnam. I'm not going to fight the war. So they denied him uh, access to his spot when he wanted. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember uh, I was going up the steps with about 12 demonstrators uh, protesting the failure of the county to see Julian Bond uh, 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 after he won the election. And a state trooper tried to hit me. And when he tried to hit me, I put my arm up like that to block the blow. Mm -hmm. And I was on the front page of all the local papers in the New York Times. And it looked like I was trying to hit the state, state trooper. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't trying to hit him. I was trying to block him from hitting me. So the next morning, my phone rang uh, at about five in the morning. Bob, 
I knew who it was because I knew it going. He said, this is Martin. He said, do you still believe in nonviolence? I said, yes, sir, I do. And that's the only time I really, really did not tell the truth to Martin Luther King Jr. Because mm. to me, nonviolence was a, a tactic. But I wanted to hurt those whites right. who were hurting black people. I really did. Right. And, and I, I was not truthful. I tell my wife, the only time I ever lied to Martin Luther King was when he told me, asked me if I strongly believed in nonviolence. I said, yes, I do. And I did. Because right. I really wanted to hurt people. Oh, yeah. So, absolutely. I can relate. So anyway, uh, coming back to that experience, I knew the importance of being active. And when you asked the question, when did I first think about uh, freedom as a little kid? Um, I worked in a, I worked for a man by the name of Max Rosenblum. He owned a grocery store. I was uh, maybe, uh, I might've been nine or 10 years of age. And Max used to charge their groceries. Mm. And they didn't have to pay for them until payday. And they would charge $2.87 worth of groceries. Mm. When they would leave, Max would change that from $2.87 to $3. And I saw that as a kid. I challenged him. And he called my mother and told my mother I was very rude to him. And my mother told me to apologize to him. That's the only time in my life I told my mother, you can whip me, you can do whatever you want to do. I'm not apologizing to him. And I didn't. So it was, it, it, I began to have experiences like that uh, in the temple shop. I was telling Letty, uh, I had to ask the Lord to forgive me for my anger towards Italians. Because I had very bad experience with Italians beginning 11, 12 years of age, working in an Italian barbershop, hearing the N-word, uh, hearing them talk about black folk. I'm over that now. So when you, you as you know, Lord, as you become an adult, you learn to deal with past discrimination. And I learned early on that there were a lot of good white folks who stood up against racism and those are the white people i related to and probably one of my best friends was a man by the name of john dooley he was a campus minister at michigan state john dooley and truman morrison were two black i'm sorry two white men who would fight for the rights of blacks and uh, but when you ask it well, I learned about racism at a very early age in right. the city of hmm? Well, let me ask you, fast forwarding, let's talk a little bit about uh, your books. Um, I, I find your, your, your book where you talk about higher, where is it? I wrote it down. I must be a little nervous because I can't, I'm not remembering it. Um, ec, um, expect the best. Provide the most is my. I hope I'm reaching for a copy of it. Okay. 
I found that fascinating because is that the one expect the best, provide the most, high high expectations? Well, even a more up-to-date one, Laura, okay. this one here. at the crossroads of fear and freedom, the okay. fight for social and educational justice. I'll okay. repeat that. At the crossroads of fear and freedom, the fight for social and educational justice. Now, okay. this is more current and more up-to-date, and I've got pictures in here like the one here, I don't know if I, I can show it, of me and Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, that um, was one. Yeah, that was one of the uh, pictures that I, you know, thought I had sent over or that I saw in the website. Yeah, because I also um, there were pictures of you with Andrew Young and uh, was it Robert Kennedy? Um, there was also yeah. pictures, you know, I saw that you had, you, I know you've been always been very good friends with Andrew Young, who was a, a former congressman, like uh, John Lewis was a congressman. So, um, but I like the, the the idea of having high expectations. And you talk about teachers having high expectations of their students and as well as, you know, something that maybe that can translate to how about students having high expectations of themselves, you know, you know, just carrying right. that whole concept on. So I yeah. found it to be, can you talk a little bit about what what that means or or yeah what that means i have seen i have observed even working as a school psychologist in california that a lot of teachers didn't think much of black kids mm. and i began to collect data to show that when teachers have high expectations for students' success. Their students did better in their classes than teachers who had low expectations. Gotcha. Uh, example, I was in a classroom uh, in Las Vegas doing a workshop, and this little black boy, probably uh, seven, eight years of age, very active, very smart, but uh, teachers were calling naughty. She grabbed him one day and snatched him so you are going to grow up just like your daddy. You're going to end up in prison. And his father was in prison at the time. So I was incensed. I asked her to step out of the hall. I said, I am t reporting you to the principal. I'm putting you on notice because you predicted that this black boy was going to end up in prison, San Quentin, like his dad. Right. And I explained to her, giving her a lecture, and she broke into tears. And but I was very kind. I wasn't rude or anything. I was just telling her the truth. And she said, "I apologize." I said, "Okay, I'm gonna go to the principal." But I said, "Watch the way you talk to black students." Uh, she had black and Hispanic students in her class, especially those little black boys. And she did. I was, we became friends. But teachers don't realize that they can set expectations in such a way that black kids aren't going to do well. You know, you tell somebody you're going to be just like your daddy and your daddy's in prison, uh, that's not good. Because I knew kids were, I had one of the nicest, smartest little boys 
that I was working with tutoring uh, uh, in a classroom in Las Vegas. And he came to school one day crying, just raising hell, fighting. And I grabbed him. I said, come on, come and talk to me. I said, what's wrong? What happened? His father was supposed to come home from prison mm. on a particular day, and they kept him and gave him additional time. And I mean, that boy, I had to talk to him. I worked with him, and I stayed close to him. And I also checked with the parole authorities. They finally let his dad out. But, you know, things like that that can get kids depressed and in mm -hmm. trouble. That's what they need to help. So when I talk about high expectations, I talk mm -hmm. about how we need to carry ourselves and conduct ourselves as teachers and counselors, principals, in such a way that kids believe they have a chance to succeed. Right. I have one more. I have, because we're, com we're coming up to time now. So I have one more question. In terms of Dr. King's dream of overcoming and, and racism and all that, do you think, how far have we come? And how much farther do we do you think we need to go before we can say that uh, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And Dr. King's, I know we've come a long way, but in your estimation. Uh, we have come a long ways, but we have a long ways to go. Discrimination in employment, discrimination against women, especially mm -hmm. black women. Uh, see, I used to always, this was just amazed me at Michigan State. At graduation time, I would always, as a dean, be sitting on the stage when the kids walk across to get their diplomas. For every uh, black boy that will walk across the stage at Michigan State to get a diploma, six or seven black women will walk across the stage. Mm -hmm. So we have a disparity in education. Education is not what we want it to be yet, educational opportunity. We need to do something about that, and especially black and Hispanic boys. Start at the garden level, uh, supporting them, pushing them, encouraging them, because society in general is not going to do it. So I think we've come on, we've made progress, uh, but we have a long ways to go. We have a long ways to admission. Right. Well, with that being said, um, I hope that, you know, that we can continue to move forward and build off the past, uh, you know, go forward uh, and, and continue the progress that we've already made. So thank you so much, yeah. Dr. Green, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Um, for those of you who tuned in, thank you for being here. And until next time, stay safe, stay well. Namaste. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.